Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. Sorry we missed you last week. It's been a crazy week. We're putting together our MLB season preview issues, spring training's underway. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. But we are back this week, and I'm joined by J.J. Cooper. We're talking spring training. We're talking which baseball players we would take to win a dunk contest. We're talking all sorts of fun stuff. J.J., before we dive into it, I got to say, I'm just thrilled to have baseball back. Just being able to throw on games first thing when I wake up here on the West Coast throughout the afternoon. There's a couple night games. I know it's spring training. I know innings are being rolled. I know some of these games are going five innings, six innings, seven innings. But we all love the game. That's why we work at Baseball America. And I got to be honest, I'm just loving having it back. And it just feels like the normal rhythms of Springer back. It, 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 it is helping me feel normal. Between college baseball being back and spring training, it's – I can OD on baseball again. And I, I'm happily – you know, I'm definitely back in that ODing uh, frame set. And, and the thing about it is, is it's just the, the rhythm of it. I mean, the fact that – it's there every day. Like, and again, the fact that we have a rhythm now is like, okay, it's a Monday when we're recording this. Today, I'm going to focus on spring training. Bobby Witt just hit a home run that everyone is saying was 484 feet. I'm going to fixate on Bobby Witt Jr.'s 480-foot homer for a while. But then tomorrow night, I'll be checking back in on college. Friday night, it'll be, you know, okay, I want to see what the aces are doing. Nothing more enjoyable than this weekend. Like, Again, right now with Vanderbilt, like, oh, am I going to watch Kumar Rocker today? Sure. Am I going to watch Jack Leiter today? Sure. You know, there's just so much going on right now. And, and, and the key part about that is, is yes, we've had the off-season layoff, but, man, I miss college baseball. Man, we, you know, we're talking about we – I was just talking with Matt Eddy. We're trying to plan out the minor league preview, and it's like our minor league preview is going to be about these guys that we can't wait to see back on the field. You know why we haven't seen them on a field in 18 months. How awesome is that? It is exciting to kind of, you know, I, I, my, my spouse is a teacher. My wife's been vaccinated. Like I see a, uh, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel where hopefully I'm going to be, you know, happily vaccinated before long and, you know, bouncing around going to games again. And man, that feels good after a year of not bouncing around and going to games. Yeah, my wife's a teacher as well. She got her first vaccine, so we're excited. The second dose is coming up in a few weeks, but there's no question. I think everyone can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And for reasons beyond baseball, obviously that's positive, but just in terms of baseball, it's a good thing for everyone, and we're all happy that it appears everything's going to get back to semi-normal in 2021. At least that's the hope. JJ, I want to dive into spring training with you and the eternal question of what, if anything, can you take from spring training? But first... I want to do some cross-sport action here. So the NBA All-Star Slam dunk contest was this past weekend. A little bit of a disappointing dunk contest compared to years past. If Anthony Simons had kissed the rim, that would have been legit. Couldn't quite get there, but still, it's always fun to see these guys. And it got me thinking, and I put it on Twitter last night, 
oh, I guess I should say Sunday night for those of you who might be listening to this a day later, which baseball player, big leaguer or prospect, and current, we're talking active players, would you take in a dunk contest? JJ, I'm starting with you. Who are you taking? Monte Harrison is, I remember writing up Monte Harrison for the draft um, years ago. And one of the things that was a key part of writing up Monte Harrison coming out of high school was Monte Harrison is this incredible multi-sport athlete and watching his mixtape, watching him throw down, like not, not you'll hear sometimes on a broadcast, like so-and-so can dunk, you know, and it's like, okay, yes. I mean, there were guys, you know, that I've played pickup games with who can dunk as in like they can, they have enough, you know, ups, they can put the ball in the bat. You know, no, I'm talking about like Monte Harrison can basically, you know, do things, you know, basically soar through the air. And, you know, again, he was like, he was a legit, absolutely legit basketball prospect. You know, he was a legit football prospect. Like he was a legit prospect in whatever sport he wanted to play. You know, if we're going with guys who are, you know, like who, absolutely know what they're doing as far as dunking Monte Harrison's one that always comes to mind for me yeah no he's right there for me I might go Amir Garrett and that probably would be my pick just because this guy did play d1 basketball at St. John's there's some videos out there of some of the dunks he threw down I mean it's ridiculous some of the things this guy could do so I think those are clearly the two favorites so you take Monte I take Amir Garrett I would love to see that dunk contest do you think we could get that going think we could get uh, the, Mar- the Marlins and the Reds to agree to that I, I don't know about that because like again you know like oh you know we're gonna lose Amir Garrett for a month because he broke his finger on the rim that'd probably be a bad thing um but that said like there are a lot of other guys I mean you know, there are baseball players who are athletes like the the my sneaky one uh, that I was going to have, he responded directly to you, you know, but my one that I was absolutely going to pull out of my back pocket was DL Hall. And I say that because DL Hall played in my home area and I knew that he was an absolutely legit basketball player, you know, and again, but wasn't recruited as a basketball player or anything like, so it wasn't something where it's like, like Monte Harrison, like you just go to YouTube and type in Monte Harrison dunks and you can be there for a while. But D.L. Hall can, you know, Orioles prospect, Orioles lefty, can legitimately, you know, throw down as well. That would be my, like, you may not have known, but no, D.L. Hall can really, can really dunk. Yeah, I had no idea D.L. Hall could dunk either, but seeing some of what was sent to me on Twitter last night, I was like, wow, this guy, yeah, I mean, he, he can legit he, dunk. He was, he was like 18 to 20 points a game his junior year, if I remember right, you know, for Houston County High. So, like, I mean, that's, you know, and it's Houston County, H-O-U-S-T-O-N. You know, that you only know that if you're from Houston County. But Houston County, but he was also from Valdosta. I think he claims the 229 more as his home area, but he was in, he was in the 478 for a while. Yeah, one of the guys out here in SoCal who's kind of a high school basketball, I wouldn't say legend, but he was known for his high school basketball prowess was Taiwan Walker. He was at Ukaipa High School, basketball stud. Ukaipa, and I know how to yep. pronounce that too because yes, I lived do. in Ukaipa. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, he was legit. Uh, D. Gordon, he can dunk. He actually played a game with the Harlem Globetrotters once a couple of years ago. That was kind of fun. But yeah, I think Amir Garrett and Monte Harrison are the clear fairs. We got some other guys, Gordon and Walker, the big leaguers, prospects, D.L. Hall. One guy that I didn't see mentioned, and I only know this because I wrote up his draft report last year, was Nick Frasso, the Blue Jays' fourth-round pick out of Loyola Marymount. That dude has some ridiculous dunks in high school. If you just Google Nick Frasso basketball, and he's kind of built like a basketball player. He's 6'5", long arms, long legs, thin torso. Like, he looks like a basketball player. He threw down some vicious dunks in high school. 
Okay, the other sneaky one I'll give you is I don't know how well he can dunk, but if you need a Bill Lambeer on your fictional MLB basketball team, Mike Montgomery's your man. Why now, do you Mike say that? Montgomery, he played at heart high. I was going to see how many guys going into the lane. He was 20 points a game, but he got kicked out of the his senior year. He got kicked out for too many technical fouls. <laughs> He didn't finish the season. That was part of our draft write-up. I, I remember that well from doing Royals coverage. But if you read our draft write-up from 2008, uh, you know, the athletic Montgomery was kicked off the heart-high basketball team for racking up too many technical fouls. He was the team's top scorer, 20 points per game. He has a long athletic build that impressed the scouts. So basically he would have fit in with the bad boy Pistons. Yeah. So, I like that. Yeah, just yeah, wanted to add a- that too. There's a lot. C.J. Abrams can do a windmill dunk when he was drafted. Some videos of that surfaced. Jordan Adams with the Angels, I have not seen him dunk, but you see his sheer athleticism, and it's not hard to go from, okay, he can scale an outfield wall like that. He can probably get up to a rim. I mean, it's, it's pretty insane what he can do. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of – there. you know, we, we, could, we could probably fill a pretty, you know, pretty good uh, roster of guys who can really, you know, like, again, not just dunk, but legitimately dunk. Yeah, I I, th- I thought about Joe Adele. He has a, a box jump he did a few years ago on Twitter. That yes. was absolutely insane. You got that kind of vertical. Like I yeah. mean, <laughs> just put the ball in your hands. You're going to be able to do yeah. something. Fernando Tatis Jr. Again, long, lanky, crazy, explosive athlete. I think it's not a stretch to say he could dunk. There are some videos out there of him doing it on Twitter. The real question is of the executives who you got in a dunk contest. I feel like the answer has to be Chris Young. MLB, you know, front, you know, and then now Rain, you know, Rangers, like, yeah, he's six ten. I mean, if you can't dunk at six ten, you you, you got problems. Uh, you know, I don't I'm know sure other way to put it. I'm With sure that wingspan, you're literally like, I mean, a, a twenty inch vertical, and and you're easy. I mean, it's not hard. I'm sure he could definitely dunk six ten playing D one, no doubt. I know AJ Preller is supposed to be an incredible basketball player. I have no idea if he can dunk. I think that would be kind of fun to find out. One guy, and there's a couple of guys, you know, Tim Anderson, Byron Buxton, guys with great hops. The one guy I'm curious about that I think could be kind of fun to see, and I have no idea if he can, I have no evidence he can, but Javi Baez, so he's listed at six foot. I've stood next to Javi Baez in close quarters. I'm just going to say that's a very generous listing. I wonder, though, just when you think about how explosive he is, how crazy athletic he is, Part of me wonders if he could get up and be that, you know, sub six footer who's just throwing down dunks. Obviously, he's not Spud Webb size or anything like that, but there's a small part of me that wonders if he could get up like that. I, that, that would be fun to see too. So basically, we need to get uh, this is what we should do. We'll have a home run derby at the next All Star game and a dunk contest. I'm, I'm all for it, but again, <laughs> not expecting it, but I'm all for it. Yeah, no, it'd be fun to see. Like I said, just if we could just get Amir Garrett and Monte Harrison, I'd be a happy man. I think that'd be pretty epic. So that's, you know, that's the fun stuff. I do want to dive into spring training a little bit here with you, JJ. So the eternal question comes up, how much, if anything, can you really take from spring training? You've been doing this for a very, very long time. I was actually thinking about this. You started at BA in 2002, correct? Yes. And spring or fall? Uh, September of O two. Okay. So I was a freshman in high school. Uh, I was going and the sad thing is, is I started covering spring training in the mid nineties. So what, what year exactly? Know, I would have gone to spring training in 90. I mean, I, I went as a fan before that, but my first year working spring training would have been 95. 
spring of 1995, I would have been six years old. So I was, I was covering, I'm old. I was covering spring Sorry. training. Well, so I need to be fair, not to make you feel too old. The reason I'm doing this is I guess we can tell the world I'm uh, due to be a father soon. My wife is due with our first child here in two weeks. So I'm basically doing everything I can to still feel young because I'm super excited to have our first child, obviously. But the thought of being a dad makes me feel super old. Like the word dad just makes me like kind of cringe a little bit. You, you, you flip into a whole new mindset, but it's cool. <laughs> it's a cool one, but you do flip into a different mindset. You, you yeah. know, like you just accept being old. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the things. Yeah, I'm struggling with that. So anyway, that's why I got to throw the shade at you a little bit just to make myself feel good. Uh, but going back into spring training, Again, we hear this question all the time. We talk about it with scouts, executives, all levels of baseball, even the players and coaches themselves. In your experience, just doing this for as long as you have, what can you take from spring training if there is anything? You, could, I, you absolutely could take something. And I do think it's actually become easier to take something now than it used to be. And the reason I say that is, is, is that if you just are going off of what a player does in a game or what he does in the stretch of really 15 to 20 games, because no one plays more than about that in spring training, you know? So if you're going off of that, well, don't put too much off of that because the, the, the level of competition varies dramatically. I mean, you could have five homers in spring training and, never have one of them off of a pitcher who's going to be on an opening day roster. I mean, that's very easy to do. Not easy. It's still hard to hit home runs, but it's, it's very possible to do. And so from that standpoint, you know, oh, this player's hitting 400, so he's earned a job. Well, really? I mean, most of these jobs understandably have been settled before spring training. But the reason I say it's changed somewhat is I'm kind of looking more like now that we have – data that we used to not used to have, you know, is a pitcher throwing harder than he used to is a pitcher throwing softer than he normally does Has a pitcher added a new pitch, which we can now tell much more easily than we could 20 years ago, 20 years ago, it was, you know, you hear about it, but you now can actually look at the attributes of them. They play in a stack cast park, or, you know, when you hear about, um, you know, Bobby Witt, we just talked about today okay, we know that that ball was absolutely crushed. And by the way, the other thing is, is now there's a lot more video so we can see that that ball was crushed in a way that 20 years ago, back when I started covering spring training, most of those games, that, you know, there were games that would occasionally, you know, things would pop up and go on ESPN or whatever, but it was much smaller. That said, like, I, it's funny, like my, one of my formative pieces of Spring training does mean something. I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm kind of formulating as I say it. I remember spring training in, I guess it would have been 01. And the story of spring training that year in Florida was Albert Pujols, who had not played above Class A at that point, basically. I mean, it was essentially coming from Class A. And he was one of the best players in spring training. And he made, you know, he made the Cardinals and boom, he's one of the best players in baseball. And so in that case, I mean, that's an example of, you know what? I remember, you know, seeing, you know, him hit a home run, I want to say in Orlando at the Braves Park and being like, wow, you know, that's the kind of thing that that kind of thing, you know, does mean something. And so yeah, I, I, I really, it gives you a lot of confirmation bias, I think is what it is. If I want to think 
that a guy's made a step forward, I can absolutely point to things and go, look. And if I want to say that he's taken a step forward and the numbers don't show it, I can say, oh, it's spring training. It's only 15 games, so we can throw it out. I, I think it's actually a little dangerous that way when I say that because, again, you can – I think you have to look more at trends, look more at things that have changed than say, oh, so-and-so's hitting 320 and therefore – has earned a job. What do you think? Well, you mentioned the velocities, and I think what gets tricky with that is a lot of these pitchers are still working themselves into shape. Yes. We see it every year. So I really don't put much stock into, oh, a guy's velocity is down, especially early in spring training. This year's version of it was Shohei Otani threw 90 miles an hour in his first bullpen, and Twitter was freaking out. And the entire time I'm thinking, people, it's his first bullpen session of camp. I'd be more concerned if he was throwing 97 in that first session because and, and the second one he was <laughs> right. And to be honest, I actually was more concerned about backs. I'm like, no ramp up slowly. You, you have right. this injury and that's, history. Don't go too fast here. That's an absolutely legitimate concern because I mean, this is an injury inflection point for pitchers. The risk you have is much more about not ramping up slowly enough than it is. I mean, we don't hear about it as much now, but I, you know, when I started covering spring training, you heard all the time about dead arm, the dead arm phase also. Like you didn't, you were taught to not freak out when a pitcher all of a sudden on March 15th or March 20th in an outing is throwing like four miles an hour less than he normally does. It's like, no, 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 that's a normal part of the progression. You know, you don't hear about that as much anymore, but that was a, that was always a key part of it was, no, 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 he's going through a dead arm phase. He'll be okay. That's part of the ramping up process. You are right. Like you don't want to go overboard on that either. And throwing a hundred too soon, not so good always. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that. I think the thing that I take from spring training that I consider valuable is if there's a visible, observable physical change in a player. You know, there's all these jokes about best shape of his life. And by the way, 98.5% of the time, yes, ignore it. It's a cliche. It doesn't mean anything. I remember in the mid-2000s, every single year, Mike Hampton was, oh, he's in the best shape of his life. His arm's the best it's been in years. And he inevitably got hurt every single year. His arm was just, by that point in his career, done. You know, 37-year-old Albert Pujols, oh, he's in the best shape of his life. Yeah, ignore that. Just ignore that entirely. But there are cases where it is accurate and it does make a big difference. And for me, the ultimate case of this was Dominic Smith a few years ago. I was in Florida in 2019, did some coverage from Mets camp. And you know, I'd known Dom, I'd seen Dom since he was a sophomore at Sarah High School in Gardena and just seen him grow throughout the years, all the physical changes that have come with his growth. And when I saw him in Port St. Lucie before the 2019 season, that was the best I had seen him physically really since he was in high school, he was slimmer, he was stronger, you could see it. And he talked a lot about it. I did a big Q&A with him. And then going out and watching him on the field in spring training, you could see it. He was more confident in the box. He was more explosive. He was quicker with his actions as a hitter, defensively, even running the bases. Everything just was a different type of athlete. And it wasn't hard to predict, hey, this is going to be good. I think this is the year Dominic Smith is going to take off. And lo and behold, he did. So that's an example to me of when best shape of his life is actually meaningful. Again, 98.5% of the time it's not, but there are cases it is. And that's a case of where I think you can tell something from spring training, just those observable physical differences. The, the guy who comes to mind for this year is, is 
I don't know if he's in the best shape of his life, but Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is in shape compared to the past several years. I mean, it's significantly better shape. And I say that, I bring that up because it's funny. I remember a few years ago talking to a pro scout who, like many pro scouts, was very much a believer in Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s bat. And I said to him, I said, give me your worst case scenario. And he said, my worst case scenario is Vlad Jr. gets so big that it really limits his swing because he really has trouble with his trunk just kind of being rotational because he's so out of shape that that affects it. And I, that's what happened. That's what happened. And that's happened to some extent. So I'm very encouraged to see what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. does in 2021 because he let himself kind of go in that direction and now he's pulled it back. And that, that really could have a significant impact for him because he was so big as to be, again, hitters hit. John Cruck, you know, was, was, you know, did not have to be, you know, slim to hit. Vlad Jr. still hit despite being one of the heaviest guys in baseball. But it absolutely should make him a better player. Not that he's in great shape, but that he is not in nearly as heavy as he was last year. As he himself has said, I think that that should have a significant impact on him, not just in the field, but also at the plate. We saw it even last year, and I wrote about it, and our dozen players who could have kind of bounce-back type years based off strong finishes to 2020, he lost a lot of weight during the year. And I, I linked to some video in the piece Look at his swing at the beginning of the year compared to the end of the year. At the beginning of the year, it was sluggish. He was, I remember watching him live thinking, he's late on 92 miles an hour. This was, this was not explosive at all. But as he lost weight throughout the year, everything started getting a little quicker, a little twitchier. He was just in better shape, and you saw the difference in the swing. You could visibly see it cut and dried. And then the performance showed. His first 20 games were rough, and then he those first three weeks, he worked off the pounds. His final 40 games, he was actually pretty good. Again, I encourage everyone to check out the piece I wrote. And that's one reason to feel bullish on him. JJ, you talked about trends as well, looking for guys who are moving in a certain direction, positively or negatively. Who are some guys that are continuing a trend, as you mentioned? Again, we're really, really early in spring training. We're barely 10 days in. So, I, again, you don't want to go crazy in any direction. But who's someone that at least is showing something that's catching your eye? One that stands out is, is and, you know, it's not in a positive way. But um, Casey Mize so far, I, I'm still worried about his fastball command. That's, to me, the missing piece. If you said what is going to make Casey Mize number one pick in the draft into Casey Mize successful big league starter, he, he's not really the same pitcher. He's throwing a lot more cutters than he did. He, you know, he doesn't really rely, or at least so far, is not relying this spring on the, uh, you know, uh, on that kind of that that splitter like he did, you know, in, in when he was in college. But whichever pitch is going to be, that's going to be kind of be his out pitch. I, I want to see 55% or better, really 60% strikeout strike percentage on his fastball. And, you know, we had an outing yesterday where it's Sunday on Sunday of this week where he didn't do that again. And it's, again, it's early. I'm not going to make sweeping generalizations off of what a guy's doing the first week of March. But that said, that's what I wanted to see him do better. And so far we're not seeing that for you. Who's someone to you, Kyle, who, 
you know, maybe if I'm the, you know, being the pessimist, who's someone who's done something well that you've kind of been impressed with so far? Well, I talk about observable physical changes. And the one that jumps out to me is Mickey Moniak. I mean, he's come in looking a lot stronger. You see he's you know, broader in the chest and the shoulders. You just see the strength. And we saw his two home runs against the Yankees last week. I mean, one, he pulled his hands in and took an inside fastball from Reggie McLean, and he hit a long way to right field. And the one that was even more impressive was left on left facing Nestor Cortez the following inning. He'd had some trouble with same side pitching and the way he saw it well and then just turned on it and hit it 415 feet to right field. That was impressive. So again, I'm not going to sit here and make any grand proclamations about Mickey Moniak. He's finally arrived. But I will say, and this is goes beyond to spring training there are always guys who are taken super high in the draft and you see them and pretty quickly you're like oh they messed up like this guy's just not very good I think any anyone who's listening fan scout whatever has a guy that was taken really high in a draft and very quickly they realized you could see it yeah this this is not good that was never the case with Mickey Moniak like I saw him at Lakewood I saw him a couple other times and there was always something there even though the numbers weren't great, you saw the ability to drive the ball gap to gap. You saw some speed and athleticism. You saw ability to play center field. It was not like this was one of those guys where there's just nothing there. And I think it's interesting seeing, okay, we saw him get to the big league last year. He performed well at the alternate site by all accounts. Now seeing what he looks like physically in spring training, how much harder he's hitting the baseball. Joe Girardi talked about it, just seeing him physically blossom. I mean, he's younger than Alec Baum. This is still a very young kid. I just think it's a promising trend in the right direction. I think it's a trend now. And the encouraging thing is, is that his increased strength, increased power is potentially providing a, a fix to one of his biggest knocks, which is this is if Mickey Moniak had been taken 25th in the first round, we probably have a whole different kind of thought process on Mickey Moniak. Oh, the problem for him, and we wrote about this before the draft, is that he was, you know, to take him 1-1, he's not the same physical talent that most 1-1s are. He wasn't particularly physically imposing. His power, you know, you really were betting on a 70-hit tool when you take him 1-1. And it's not a 70-hit tool. But what he is showing now, yes, he still is young, that he's always been reasonably well-rounded, though. And if his power can get to being 45, 50 power even. Doesn't have to be 60. But if it's that, well, then you start talking about it's, you know, he's a productive, uh, you know, he's a productive big leaguer for, you know, potentially a, a pretty good while. Now, again, that's not ideally what you want at 1-1, but also it wasn't a draft. Like you look back at the, uh, the you know, hey, I'm going to run through here the position players taken in the top 10 in that draft. Nick Senzel, two. Corey Ray, five. Zach Collins, 10. Oh, let's keep going. Kyle Lewis, 11, who, by the way, you know, was the best college player in that class. You know, so that one maybe. But, uh, you know, Josh Lowe, 13. Will Benson, 14. Matt Thigh, you know, Alex Kirloff, who's been pretty good. Matt Thigh, 16. It wasn't a draft overloaded with massive impact bats and so you know again is mickey moniak ever going to be what you expect when you see a guy taking one one probably not but that doesn't mean he can't be a productive big leaguer and the trends this year are encouraging for that because 
the thing he needed to do was to get, get more physical and he's starting to get more physical. I've always said that Mickey Moniak is not a bad player. It's just where he was drafted kind of shapes perceptions and expectations. If Mickey Moniak was taken in the third or fourth round, you'd be like, yeah, no, good player. It's just the fact he was the first overall pick kind of, again, expectations get a little wild. But it's funny you bring up this 2016 draft. I was having this conversation with Matt Eddy the other day. So there's always late round draft successes in any draft. But if you look just overall big picture, for the most part in most drafts, the total number of war produced by the guys taken in the first round tends to be higher than the total number of career war produced by the guys taken in the second round. The guys taken in the second round, it's generally higher than the guys taken in the third round, so on and so forth. I mean, it, for the most part, most drafts, it does line up that way. The 2016 draft, look at the guys taken in the third and fourth round of this draft. Fourth round, you have reigning Cy Young Award winner Shane Bieber. Corbin Burns, Joey Lucchese, Bobby Dahlbeck, Bryce Wilson. You go into the third round, you have Zach Gallon, you have Sean Murphy, you have Aaron Savala, you have Jesus Lazardo, you have Dustin May. I mean, the third and fourth rounds of this draft were actually pretty stacked. Second round, you have Bo Bichette, by the way. But Bo Bichette wasn't taken in the top 50 picks. Brian Reynolds was taken 59th overall. Pete Alonso, 64th overall. I mean, the guys taken after the 50th pick, blow away the guys taken in the first round. It kind of is almost like an upside down draft in a way. It, it is a weird draft. Now at the same time, the interesting one that I'll throw out, is like I said, was if Mickey money had been taken 25th, but actually if Mickey money had been taken 25th, we would compare him with another California high school outfielder taken in the first round, which was Dylan Carlson taken at 33rd in the, and the thing about it is, is quite, you know, this is where you, you if you want to compare apples to apples, you want Dylan Carlson, not Mickey Moniak. And that's, you know, kind of you know, like to me, like that's one of the things that does stand out is, is that, you know, if I'm choosing like in hindsight, we, you know, at the time, Mickey Moniak was viewed as a better prospect than Dylan Carlson almost across the board, maybe across the board. But that said, you know, that th those are two California high school kids, you know, from that draft class from the first round. And in hindsight, Dylan Carlson, who did not have the track record, did not have the USA baseball stardom that Mickey Moniak did. You know, Mickey Moniak was, had a much bigger resume at the time, but Dylan Carlson's the one who in the end of the day is more physical, you know, really kind of probably has a little bit louder tools across the board and, you know, is, is probably a little, you know, uh, maybe a little more feel to hit too. So it, it's kind of ended up being like, that's the kind of kudos to the Cardinals because that, that's, uh, you know, a, a, a great find. All right, JJ, we're going to dive into this a little more, but first, a quick break. And we're back. There are some talented players here in the first round. Don't get me wrong. You mentioned Dylan Carlson, Will Smith, Dakota Hudson. Gavin Lux obviously struggled last year, but he was our minor league player of the year in 2019. There's still hope there. Alex Kirilov, as you mentioned. So there are good players here in the first round. Don't get me wrong. I just, I keep looking at the guys taken in the third and fourth rounds. They're like, yeah, you'd rather have Shane Bieber. Yeah, you'd rather have Zach Gallon. You'd rather have a lot of guys taken third, fourth round, or even, again, back half of the second round, Bo Bichette, Pete Alonso, a lot of those guys taken after the 50th, and in some cases, the 60th pick. One of the things I love about studying the draft is you always think that, no, no, well, where is the talent in this? It's, it's always going to be there. And the thing that does stand out is, is sometimes you have drafts that are just bereft of something. Like, I, I will forever, forever, forever talk about the, the worst 
high school draft class of all of hitter class of all time, which is 2006, in which Tommy Pham, who took about a decade to get there, but Tommy Pham is, I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally the only long-term productive hitter drafted out of high school from that entire 50-round draft. The other best hitter is probably Travis Snyder, who has not really had the career that you want from a first-round pick. The next best productive position player was Hank Conger, and the, the minute we start talking about Hank Conger's bat, we're doing something really, really wrong. You know, we look back, there was a year that we go, well, you know, well, was Dylan Tate overdrafted? And you're like, yeah, he probably was. That was a draft class where Dylan Tate and Carlson Fulmer were considered the top two pitching prospects, college pitching prospects in the draft class. In hindsight, the answer was no. You know, it, it sometimes happens. And that's kind of what I find interesting is sometimes you, you look at it, you know, okay, yeah, 20, 2015 draft class, your, your, your pitcher is in the top 10. Dylan Tate, Tyler J., Carson Fulmer. Whichever way you went there, you know, you, you were going in a direction that, you know, really you – you hoped you went in a different direction. Alex Bregman did go two. DSV Swanson won. So the two guys at the top went a little, you know, were, were the guys you wanted to take. But it, it is, you know, it, it is remarkable sometimes to look back and go, I, I remember the time we thought it was a bad college draft class. Walker Bueller was in that class. So there was a guy, he was hurt at the time, but there was a guy to get in the first round. But, but you know, that's how John Harris, nothing is John Harris, but that's how John Harris ends up in the first round is that teams sometimes will want to force like, well, he's the fourth best, you know, fifth best college arm in the class. Maybe there isn't five guys that you want to take in the first round in a draft. It's the funny thing, you know, I don't know how we got on this tangent, but it's a fun tangent because I the love talking the, about the, looking the 20, back at old drafts. The 2016 draft again, I just think looking at fourth round, feel relatively safe saying that if you were starting a team right now, you would take Shane Bieber over anyone taken in the first round. Third round where you have Zach Gallon, you have Dustin May, you have Jesus Lazardo. You've got Sean Murphy. You, you've got some really good players in here. And, and again, okay. the second round, you see Bo Bichette. You see Pete Alonzo. Those guys are taken in the 60s. So, so. Okay, so if I was going to give you my first round back, my first round is going to have Will Smith. It's going to have uh, Dylan Carlson. Dakota it's Hudson. It's going to have Dakota Hudson. Kyle Lewis. Kyle Definitely. Lewis. And Ian probably Anderson. like Gavin Lux, but Ian Anderson. And Ian Anderson. No, and definitely Ian Anderson. Definitely Ian Anderson. I'd probably still take the first round there, but it's it's a good battle. Like, you know, and that's something that should that most years you would never say that. Yeah. yeah. No, anyway, it's just kind of fun. But going back to, you know, what we were originally talking about, I think the strides Mickey Moniak has taken is certainly promising. And that's kind of one guy I'm watching in spring training this year. JJ, you referenced Dylan Carlson, and this kind of leads us into another discussion. So we released our top 20 rookies for 2021. They're up at baseballamerica.com right now. And normally, there's a pretty solid method to this. I went back and did the research. 13 of the last 16 Rookie of the Year winners finished the previous season, neither the majors or AAA. 33 of the last 40 top five finishers in Rookie of the Year balloting finished the previous year either in AAA or MLB as a call-up. This year, we didn't have a AAA last year. And I think a classic case is a guy like Andrew Vaughn here, who theoretically in 2020 would have started at AA, gotten up to AAA, and maybe he gets a call to the majors. But now as we're putting together our 2021 
top rookie rankings, he doesn't have any experience above high A. So it's how do you equate the alternate site? And this is something teams around baseball are trying to figure out. We know the alternate site was not equivalent to a full season facing pitchers at double and triple A. But what is it? Do you consider it enough for him to be in the majors this year? And by all accounts, the White Sox do. He's expected to be their primary DH in 2021. But it's just another example of something that it's always hard to project who are going to be the best rookies in any season because there's the obvious guys, but there's always someone who pops up and does better than you expect. And now just without having that triple A kind of background to fall back on, oh, this guy successfully made the jump. It it was tough this year. I think this was the hardest year putting together a top 20 rookies. Uh, You did it, Matt did it, I did it. We kind of put it together as a staff. There's a lot of guys. I think about Andrew Vaughn. I think about Wander Franco. It's like, well, they've never played above high A. And normally that would mean they're probably not going to make immediate impact as rookies based on precedent, but that goes out the window this year. I, yeah, I don't have a great answer for that because again, we are in, we, a lot of times you say unprecedented and it's like, actually it's not unprecedented. It's just been a long time. No, we are in unprecedented. Like there is no equivalent. There's never been, Oh, there's just no minor league season to, and when we talk about alt site, the thing that's tough to, to, to calibrate that, is one different teams had different kind of guys at alt site. Like I, I could absolutely construct a case where you say, if you've got a class A hitter and he's facing a whole lot of veteran pitchers who still have velo, who are sitting there waiting, you know, for their call-ups that that's, you know, that could kind of accelerate the development process. But at the same time, what are those guys working on? Are they really sitting there, you know, really worried about getting this 19, 20, 21 year old out? Or are they really more kind of working on whatever they're working on? And those aren't really competitive at best. Not that the pitching's not decent, but I'm saying like, if a guy's sitting out there and he's like, I'm just not feeling my change up lately. So I'm just going to throw change ups. Well, that's not the same thing as stepping into the box in the seventh inning against a guy. And you're like going, okay, I need to get a, you know, we're down by one and this guy's trying to get me out and these stats count for him like they do for me. So he's really trying to pitch me. There's so many variables in that, that this is going to be a year where it's going to be really difficult to figure out what that means because there is no clear and obvious answer. Like you mentioned, Andrew Vaughn, Andrew Vaughn is a guy who's going to jump, you know, essentially it looks like multiple levels and in a normal year, that would be kind of, wow, that's aggressive. I don't know. You like, you just laid it out. It's like, if you gave him a normal 2020, it wouldn't be aggressive at all. We'd be saying, yeah, he's right on pace to be there. I, again, the Orioles aren't exactly trying to win, but so Adley Rushman's development, he's a catcher also, but I don't have a great feel for when an Adley Rushman timeline is now, because if you look at catchers of his repute, in previous times, like if, if Ali Rushman had gone out and let's say made it to double A by midseason last year and set double A on fire a la Matt Wieters, what, 2008? I think it was eight. But would we be talking about, you know, when is Ali Rushman coming up this year? Instead, we're not talking about Ali Rushman being a big leaguer in 2021 because he really doesn't have full season baseball experience. And you kind of want to see him, you know, just kind of handle the grind of a normal minor league season before he kind of worries about anything else. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of calibration issues figuring out where players are. I will say 
that's been one of the fun parts of spring training is seeing a lot of these guys we have not seen since August, September of 2019, how they've changed physically, how they're looking, how they're doing. It's just, especially for the younger prospects, the amount of physical growth that takes place between ages 18 and 20, those first two years of pro ball is huge. Even 20 to 22, the college guys, 21 to 23, so much changes. And it's mostly happened behind the curtain this last year and a half, really. That's been one of the more interesting things in spring training. I mean, just seeing Bobby Witt, what he looks like physically, you talked about his 484 foot home run, just seeing some of the clips of him on social media. I'm like, wow, he looks like a man. I mean, it's, it's just seeing how much these guys have developed and then trying to calibrate, okay, well, what does that mean for where they are physically now, their skills right now? It's something that I know you've talked to teams about, I've talked to teams about, and even their answer a lot of times is we don't know. We don't have, you know, any sort of precedent for this. So it's going to be fascinating to see who's able to make what jumps and when, because there's no great gauge right now. Oh, and, and the other thing is, is that the jump to the majors is already a difficult one, but also one that's not always linear. I mean, again, well, linear, oh, definitely not. <laughs> it's, it's not always linear for one, but you know, we saw we talk about Dylan Carlson, Dylan Carlson, first time up last year, overmatch second time up. Oh, Dylan Carlson figured it out a little bit, but on top of that, a guy can have a great first month or an awful first month in the majors. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's there for good or that he's over his head. It, you know, there's an acclimation process, but all of that's going to be amplified this year because if Andrew Vaughn goes out and has a rough first month, instead of it being, Oh, he has acclimation issues. There's going to be that piece in the back of everyone's mind. that says, is he just not ready? You know, and again, a lot of that's going to be the quality of that bats, things like that. There are ways you can go beyond just the stat line, but there's going to be a lot of calibration issues with that because we're all dealing with an unprecedented situation. So with that, I know that as we were putting together our top 20 rookies for 2021, there's a lot of comfort in the guys who have gotten to the major leagues. First and foremost, they know what it looks like and they're probably best prepared to handle it. We saw last year's two rookies of the year, for example, Kyle Lewis and Devin Williams were guys who were in the majors at the end of 2019. They'd had those call-ups. But for us, when we were putting together our top 20 rookies for 2021, you absolutely lean heavily toward the guys who have major league experience already. Randy Rosarena, Cabrian Hayes, Ian Anderson, Sixto Sanchez, Dylan Carlson, Ryan Mountcastle. I think those are the guys you reasonably expect to make the biggest impact. And again, that's true in a normal year, just because they've seen what major league pitching looks like, or in the cases of Anderson and Sanchez, what major league hitters look like. They've learned what adjustments they have to make. They're already at an advantage, but I think this year, even more so, there's just a lot more clarity in terms of those guys. And, and also just the fact those guys have been in competitive environments recently, whereas a lot of the other guys just haven't as much as the outside instructs you do what you can to recreate it, but it's not the same. The other thing I would say is just those are players who are going to be in lineups from day one also, which when it comes to a rookie of the year type balloting and things like that, that does matter because, you know, if you're talking about one player is held back until May, wink, wink, or one player, you know, is, you know, gets that moment like, ah, we're going to hold them back for a week or two just to, just to see that, that matters. It, that, that's that Randy Rosarena shows up this year. He's not fighting for a spot. <laughs> Randy Rosarena's like, I've earned this. 
I'm now here. Cabrian Hayes, Cabrian Hayes is not fighting for a spot on the Pirates. He's already probably the Pirates. I mean, if he's not their best position player, he's one of their best two or three. Uh, I think that's like the the worst that you could rank him. So you have these guys who Cabrian Hayes can have a rough month. It's not going to change anything. They're just going to say, get through it, you know, fight through it. Same with Randy Rosarena. And that helps also because Dylan Carlson had a rough month last year, having made a pretty big jump, and he was sent back down. Well, the minute you're sent back down, the chances of you being rookie of the year if it are, are significantly lessened because, A, you probably struggled to be sent down, but, B, you're going to have a month's left of stats. And so, I mean, rookie of the year is an accumulative award in a lot of cases. So the guys who are there from April through September – are going to have a better chance of winning the award than the guys who are there from May through September or May, a little bit of June, July, August, September. Those guys are not going to have as much chance to win it because they're going to be battling the guys who are putting up those counting numbers. So I wanted to ask, we put together again, our own individual list for top 20. We kind of synthesized them. Myself, JJ and Matt came up with the staff top 20 rookies for 2021. Matt and I both had Randy Rosarena as our top-ranked rookie for 2021. We both felt like he'd be the guy who would be the most impactful rookie. And I think a lot of people around baseball probably feel the same. You went a different direction. You actually picked Dylan Carlson as your number one rookie for 2021. What was it that you saw that made you pick him over Rosarena, Hayes, and some of the other guys? Well, I think Randy Rosarena is going to have a very good year. But at the same time, I kind of, I'm, I'm probably gaming this a little bit too much, but Randy Rosarena set the world on fire so much in 2020, in September and October, that I feel like if Randy Rosarena has a very good, it's hard to think of this as his rookie season, but it is, a very good rookie season, it may come across as almost a little bit disappointing. It's like, he only hit 18 homers. 18 homers, that was nice. Okay, yeah, that was good. I was a little disappointed. I was hoping for 30. You know, something like that, where the thing I kind of, I look at Dylan Carlson, I, I think Dylan Carlson finished the season strong. He's still very young. And they're, <laughs> I, I just kind of envisioned that he could end up being a very key part of well, a team that should be right in the middle of the NL Central race. And I, you know, I, I think that he could put up some very solid counting numbers because I think they're going to rely on him pretty heavily this year. They used to have a ton of outfielders. Now, Dylan Carlson kind of, they very much need him to be in the middle of that lineup. And, you know, I, I think that he has a chance to have a very productive, I think I had a Rosarena two, if I remember right. So it wasn't like there was a massive canyon there, but I, maybe I zigged a little bit when everyone else zagged because there's, because I usually feel like that the, whoever we think is going to win this at the very start of the year rarely does. So I, I went with someone else who was a very plausible thing. You could make the same argument about Cabrian Hayes. Like Brian Hayes was the best rookie in the national league last September. End of story. There's not a question. Oh, no doubt. Now, it was September. Okay. That was a better production. That was more power than he had shown throughout his minor league career so I would love to say that it is a, you know, he has reached a new level and he likes the major league baseballs as most sitters do. But at the same time, if you told me that he, again, he's going to regress a little bit from that at least, but he could 
he can still regress a good bit and the defense at third and all that, his ability, he's always been a really good hitter. He's going to be a productive player. Maybe he just doesn't end up hitting the highs in 2021 that he did in September of 2020. Well, yes, I, I feel pretty safe saying he's not going to hit 376 over the course of 162 games. If he does, he'll be rookie of the year. I'll make if that. If he prediction. does that, he'll be MVP. I mean, <laughs> this is the, again, I don't know. I'm, I'm, this is the year I'm, I'm, I'm holding out for this Juan Soto year that Juan Soto is going to have this year where it's like, like a Tony Gwynn type year, where he's, you know, where he's where pushing like, 400 at the end of August type yeah, of deal, you know, in August. And, you know, like if, or even if, okay, maybe it's a Barry Bonds like year where he's actually pushing like a 500 OVP in August or something like that, you know, where it's like, wow, this is incredible. So maybe, you know, Cabrian could hit 376 and still finish second in the MVP. But, you know. Again, o- overall point taken. I will say with Dylan Carlson, he really, really made a big change from when he was up the first time to when he came up the second time. I actually wrote about this when I was covering the Padres Cardinals wild card series, and Dylan Carlson was exceptional in game one. Uh, he had an OPS of 967 from the start of his second call up through the postseason last year when the Cardinals were eliminated. And he was hitting cleanup for them in the postseason, joining Stan Musial and Albert Pools as the only Cardinals players 21 or younger to ever back cleanup in the postseason. I'd say that's pretty good company. Um, and he was just doing everything. He was hitting for extra base power. He was taking his walks. He was stealing bases. He was making diving catches in the outfield. I think this is a really good player. And again, I think in any ranking you want to do, he's one of the top five rookies for 2021. I do feel like this group of five Rosarena, Hayes, Carlson, Sixto Sanchez, Ian Anderson. Maybe it's putting too much stock in what they showed last year in a very small sample in a year when a lot of players, veteran players, were not playing their best just because the circumstances of the season. But I do believe in the talent of all five of these guys. And I do feel pretty comfortable saying all five of these guys, as long as they stay healthy, of course. I feel like we'll be at minimum positive contributors to their teams and all have a chance to be impact contributors to their teams. Okay. So let me put you on the spot though. Now let's go deeper on this. Cause sometimes someone comes from further away yep. and ends up being rookie of the year. Like if we were talking, we're talking about Randy Rosarena now, but if you said which rookie, cause the rookie who had the most impactful 2020 was Randy Rosarena. It just happened to be that a lot of that impact was during the postseason, which doesn't count. But if you said best rookie season, he had it because postseason counts even more, um, in my in my opinion, at least. But who's someone take the top ten out of this and really even take the top fifteen? I don't want to say like Christian Pache is the top fifteen guy for us. Okay, it's not hard to construct a case for Christian Pache. Plays Gold Glove defense, runs into twenty home runs, and helps drive the Braves to playoffs since rookie of the year. That's an easy one. So who's a guy further down? Doesn't have to be off of our 20, but could be off of our 20, or someone further off who you could construct a, here's a way that this player could be rookie of the year. Easy. Bobby Dahlbeck. You talk about the right, right power hitter is the guy that a lot of people kind of poo-poo a little bit, and you look up. A lot of the time, those guys win rookie of the year. You know, I remember Aaron Judge going into his 2017 season. A lot of people were not sure what he was going to do just because the strikeout rate was really ugly in his debut. He's such a big guy. Is he going to cover the plate? 
the dude hit 52 bombs. Like the guy could mash, you know, Pete Alonzo, same thing. Oh, you know, question the athleticism and, and how much is he going to really make contact? And did he really hit elite pitching again? guy hit 50 plus bombs and was legit. I think a lot of times people just automatically poo poo the right, right corner guy. When in reality, if you're in the middle of a lineup hitting for ridiculous power and you can, you know, get into that 260 range, you're going to do very, very well in rookie of the year balloting. And, and I really, I think people who have listened to me on the podcast before will know this. And it takes a lot for me to say this because Bobby Dahlbeck is an Arizona wildcat and I'm an Arizona state sun devil. I, I do believe in him. I've seen him make adjustments year to year. Look, there's always going to be strikeouts in his game. Absolutely. There's no question about that. He's, he's not going to ever hit 320 and compete for a batting title. We agree. No, no, but, <laughs> but I've seen him make adjustments. He draws a lot of walks. There's impact power there and it's power to all fields. I've seen him crush some balls to right. We've seen in spring training, hit a long one to right center the other day. He has a spot in the Red Sox opening day lineup. He's going to be their opening day at first base. And by the way, he's a better defensive third baseman than Rafael Devers is. If Devers' defensive struggles continue, I could see them flipping them. Now, again, the fact that Dahlbeck has actually played first base in his career and Devers hasn't means it probably won't happen. But the point being, I think Bobby Dahlbeck will play a major role for the Red Sox from start to finish this year. I think there is very, very, very realistically a scenario where just as he does at every other level, he adjusts, he cuts his strikeout rate. I mean, there's 35 plus 40 home run power in there. And if he can do that, you know, keeping it around 250, 260, just cut his strikeout rate enough. And with the walks he draws, the on-base percentage will be high. I can see it. Now, I can also see... If he doesn't make the adjustment and he's hitting 210 with 22 home runs, then it doesn't happen. But to me, that's the guy outside the top 15. I'm like, yeah, I can craft a very realistic scenario where Bobby Dahlbeck has the type of season we've seen. Again, I'm not going to say he's going to get the levels of, of Judge or Alonzo, but just the idea of, you know, right, right power guy who really changes games with one swing more often than not and you know, has a chance to be in their starting lineup from day one. That, that would be my pick. I will say I'm also kind of a, a Dahlbeck believer. I, I do legitimately wonder how well he hits really good pitching. I don't really care that much though, as far as that and him being a productive player, because there's enough mediocre pitching. He'll hit mistakes. If he gets to play every day, he'll hit 25 to 30 just hitting mistakes. By the way, in the AL East especially, there's a lot of mediocre pitching this year. If you look through some of these projected rotations, it's not great. It's really not. But the the guy I'll go with is is Tarek Skubal. And it's just partly because I'm a Tarek Skubal believer. But, you know, I wish I'd seen a little bit more of him in spring training this year so far. He's basically made one outing and it wasn't at a StatCast site. I'd love to, you know, have a little bit more to go on. But I just believe that, like, as opposed to – we talked about Casey Miser earlier – I don't think that Scooball's issues that he showed in his brief debut last year were things that are derailing him. I think he just needed to kind of get his feet wet. And he's going to be pitching in the lowest of low pressure because it's not like that the Tigers are really going to be looking at this going, we need any of these guys to be basically leading us to the postseason because they're not going to the postseason this year. So, you know, and again, I don't think that the, uh, NL, the AL Central is going to be all that great. So uh, I'll throw Tarek Scooball as a sleeper pick. One thing I didn't appreciate about Scooble until I sort of looked at some of the breakdown of his starts last year, 
he really had two ugly starts that kind of inflated his ERA. Other than that, and he did have some short outings, but there were a couple of outings where it's, you know, five innings, two runs, six innings, one run, uh, six innings, two run runs, you know, with eight strikeouts and no walks. There's actually a pretty decent chunk of good starts in here. And again, the ERA was really inflated by his, his first major league start, which is completely understandable. And he had a rough one against the Cardinals in September. So uh, yeah, he's interesting. Again, I, I think we knew he was good. You never want to go crazy off of any pitcher's first couple starts. We've seen pitchers again and again and again, take a little bit longer. But when I really looked into it, I didn't realize that it was actually maybe not as bad as it seemed on the surface. Just again, it's really two bad starts that, that really inflate that ERA. And yeah, he's an interesting guy. The question I want to ask you is, so we talked earlier about 13 of the last 16 rookie of the year winners finished the previous season, either in AAA or the majors and 33 of the last 40 top five finishers finished the previous season, either in AAA or the majors. We do have some shooting stars, though, who are the exceptions. Juan Soto, being first and foremost among them, obviously didn't win, but was a top five finisher after making the jump from A-ball. And we also have Fernando Tatis Jr. a couple years ago. Again, did not win, but he had not played neither AAA or the majors, made the jump straight from AA and was fantastic his rookie season as well. Do you see someone, wink, wink, nod, nod, I'm asking really about Wander Franco, who is able to make a jump like that this year, especially given the reasons we talked about, really the same with Andrew Vaughn, that while he hasn't technically played above high A, he has been playing at kind of a higher level over the last year, even if it's not reflected in traditional double-A, triple-A structures. I could give you Wander. I'll leave Wander for you. I'll give you a crazy one. He does not have basically full season experience right now. What about Bobby Witt Jr.? I, I say this because, like, if you said it was going to come out of nowhere, this is the team. If it was a team that was going to do it, I, I, I do think the Royals believe in Bobby Witt to the point. I'm not saying it's a great development idea, but I'm saying if you told me that Bobby Witt Jr. ended up playing the majority of this season in the big leagues for the Royals, it wouldn't stun me. They really – I remember talking to Royals officials last summer who were like, he's the best hitter in our camp. And I mean, and they didn't meet among prospects. Like he was putting together some of the best at-bats in their camp at summer camp last year. He's had a very good spring so far this year. It is utterly outlandish. This is a guy who's in, whose minor league experience right now is Jose Guillen going back because I'm old. Jose Guillen's jump would be less than that. But that said, like, I would say that, you know, if again, I wouldn't want to put money on this, but if I'm in Vegas and you told me that that's 500 to one odds, I'd be happy to put a tenner on it and like go, eh, if I'm right, I'm going to win a lot on that. Like if you said a long shot, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Now I'll throw it back to you for Wander. The problem I have of Wander, not that he's not going to, Wander's going to make his own path because he's so good that having guys ahead of him is not really going to slow him down all that much. But I do wonder, I kind of see him as a guy who's going to get more, he's going to get there eventually this year. And then he, but I kind of see them easing him in because where is he going to play every day? And maybe they put him at third, which he hasn't done a whole lot of yet, but I don't have that answer of, Oh, you know, here's where the Rays are just going to plug him in and say, it's yours. Go at it. Well, I'll start with Bobby Witt. 
he's a very, very talented young player. Clearly, we think very highly of him. He's top 20 overall prospect in the game, and there's a lot of promise there. I have a very hard time seeing anybody who has only played in the AZL getting to the majors and succeeding in the majors at a level that would allow him to win or compete for rookie of the year. That to me, I I can't quite get on board with that. And again, that's not about him. That's about the nature of how ridiculously huge the gap is from, I mean, forget rookie ball, high A to the majors is enormous. Double A to the majors is pretty significant. So yeah, again, the Royals can obviously love him and, and, Maybe he performs so crazy well that something happens where they do bring him up. But again, it would surprise me if that happened. And, and even if it does, I have a hard time seeing him outperforming the guys who have that AAA or major league experience. Regarding Wander Franco, you're right. There's not an obvious spot for him right now. I just the Rays, the way they're constructed. And this to me is, is going to be a case of A, if an injury occurs, which is always possible. And a lot of times that is what opens the door for guys. You go back to 2017, Cody Bellinger was not supposed to be on the Dodgers in 2017, but they had some injuries in the corner outfield and he ended up getting the call to take over in left field for them for a little bit. And then Adrian Gonzalez got hurt, but he was their first baseman the rest of the year. So even for guys where there doesn't appear to be a clear path, all it takes is one injury and they can be there. Absent an injury to Brandon Lauer, Willie Adamas, I think the way it would happen would be if the Rays, the gamble they're taking that they can get through a 162 game season with Tyler Glasnow, Ryan Yarborough, and then cobbling together a bunch of starts from, you know, reclamation projects or guys who are coming off of injury or really young pitchers who we have no idea if they're actually ready to start games in the majors consistently. If for some reason that doesn't work. And I think there's a very real scenario where it doesn't work and you essentially have Glasnow, Yarborough, and a bunch of guys you're rolling out there who either can't stay healthy or aren't effective and their season goes by the wayside and they become sellers and maybe trade one of them. I think that would be the path how it happens, but we'll see. Again, you know, Joey Wendell was at third base during the postseason for them last year, made some exceptional defensive plays. I don't know if Joey Wendell would hold off Wander Franco if the Rays decide we want his bat in the lineup so much we're willing to play him at third base or maybe they do some positional gymnastics and move some other guys around. So I, I think there are scenarios where he does get the playing time to do it, but a lot of it's going to depend on factors outside of him even, just where the Rays are in the standings, what's happening with this pitching staff, and ultimately how competitive they are. I think all that's going to affect their decision. It'll be interesting to watch this year, and the great thing is, is, is we're only just beginning. That we are. It's it's fun to you know again, be back in early March talking about what's happening on the field as opposed to watching and seeing what's happening with the coronavirus, and then hearing everything is shut down and wandering through the unknown for a little bit. Again, for reasons beyond baseball, but it's certainly better to be, I, I think, where we are today than where we were a year ago or what was about to take place a year ago. Certainly glad to be back talking baseball with you, JJ. We covered a lot on this podcast. I look forward to continuing podcasting with you throughout the year. And I'm just happy again, once again, I can't state this enough. Baseball's back, semi-normal rhythms, and it just feels right. It does. Talk to you all soon. 
All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Always happy to hear from you. And please make sure and check out some of our other podcasts. Carlos Colazzo and Ben Badler have started a future projection podcast. They talk a lot more about some things on the amateur side, the draft, international. JJ and I will be talking a lot more about stuff happening, minors, majors, and beyond. But definitely go ahead and give them a listen. They're great as always. We've got a lot of good content coming up at Baseball America. Our MLB season preview issue is coming out next month, so keep an eye out for that. We've got a lot of college coverage. The college season, as JJ mentioned, is underway. We've got a lot on Vanderbilt's aces, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker. So it's an exciting time, and we're happy to be here for it. Once again, for JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, everybody. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.